This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's official, as you heard in Bob's News, as of tomorrow, Ontarians over 60 can start booking their fourth doses of COVID vaccine. Now, it comes as the number of cases is spiking and immunity is waning in this sixth wave. You've got to wait five months after your third shot to get the fourth. Uh, If you have questions or comments, or let me know, are you going to be on the line tomorrow morning to book your appointment? Are you anxious to get that fourth shot? What about your reaction to the lifting of mandates? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Barry Pekis, Medical Officer of Health for York Region, Dr. Prabhat Jha, Epidemiologist and Faculty Member at the Dalla School of Public Health, and Kiro Masse, Pharmacist and Owner at Lawler Pharmacy in Toronto. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Hello. Happy to be here. So let us begin with Dr. Pekis. So uh, your reaction? Uh, you know, I think it's news we were expecting. We're looking forward to giving uh, folks in that age bracket their fourth dose. Um, we've seen it work well in other countries, particularly Israel, where it showed some, you know, really robust uh, results uh, preventing severe illness and, and most uh, importantly, uh, preventing death in folks who've gotten the fourth dose. So, you know, I think it's it's good news. And, and the five-month interval, I think, is is good news as well. It's sort of uh, it's an, an interval with, that I think makes sense from a scientific point of view, and, and we certainly have the capacity, uh, whether it's in pharmacies or, or primary care or in our public health um, clinics, uh, to deliver that, that dose to anybody who needs one. Dr. Ja, uh, I think only about 50% of people in the province have taken their third dose. Yes, and we know third doses have reduced um, hospital occupancy and intensive care occupancy. So I think that remains the priority. I I think we should be a bit humble that effectively we've got a more modest next wave, hopefully a more modest next wave if you look at the European data, who are typically two or three weeks ahead of us. And that um, these strategies to try to get vaccines into uh, the above 60 are only going to have a minor role, quite frankly. We know that Um, even two doses, but ideally three, have excellent protection against hospitalizations and deaths. However, the people who are still showing up in in hospital are the really elderly, the ones that are 80 or older, and the ones who have frailty. You know, they have basically, um, they can easily fall sick. Those populations would be good targets for fourth doses, and I hope that's the prioritization that uh, that is done. If the goal is to keep our hospitals' um, admissions low, I, I think we've almost given up on the goal of trying to decrease cases, but we should still focus on decreasing hospitalizations. Why, why do you say that 60-plus will only have a minor impact? Well, if you, uh, quite frankly, if you look at the experience in different settings, where they did or did not have uh, lifting of uh, basically all controls. Like in Denmark, they pretty much removed everything. And they had an increase uh, far more modest than the original Omicron increase. And they've now subsequently seen a decline. And the modeling for Ontario suggests we can expect a similar pattern. No one expects there will be up to 4,000 hospitalizations again. And the model suggests perhaps a thousand or so. That's still substantial. Uh, now, in that context, um, and what we know about how well the vaccines keep people from dropping dead or going to the hospital versus how well the vaccines work at preventing infection, 
uh, I think we should be cautious to say that uh, we're uh, not going to get a huge gain from this vaccination strategy. I would have liked to see a messaging much more on the importance of continuing masking, for example, because uh, we know masks uh, are effective, um, and yet uh, the the messaging was very much okay. You know, you you get your fourth dose, you're okay. I think I would take far widespread masking above trying to push a fourth dose. Hmm. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, let's bring in Kiro Masse. Uh, how are you fixed for supply? Do you have to get supply in? I know that uh, a lot of pharmacies have seen a big slowdown in people coming in for whatever their first, second or third doses, and uh, they've got to gear up now. So right now I have about six doses in my fridge because there was such a low demand and I obviously don't want to order doses that are going to expire. My expectation is uh, because of the fact, as Dr. Jad mentioned, that this will probably have a very modest impact on the overall uh, trajectory in this province. You're, we're, not, we're still not going to get such a huge sort of influx uh, of uh, patients requesting a fourth dose, um, it will probably be, as mentioned, the um, very immunocompromised or people with multiple comorbidities, uh, very elderly that will be seeking it out. And much like the third dose, which unfortunately didn't have such a huge uptake, but um, they were not going to get such a huge demand. In the grand scheme of things, I feel that a fourth dose is like offering a helmet to someone being mauled by a bear. Uh, there are so many other measures that we can do that will have a greater impact but aren't being done, like masking, as mentioned as well, uh, providing better access for Paxlovid, which objectively has a much uh, higher efficacy in preventing hospitalizations and complications than a fourth dose. But again, I'm not seeing that, so... Well, the sure, minister will we'll, we'll, we'll stock up and we'll do our best to to look after the people that need it. Um, on that front, uh, the minister said that they are looking at letting the pharmacies prescribe Paxlovid and they're getting it out. Uh, but uh, you know, frankly, Kiro, uh, I'm not sure I agree with you. I mean, I think that the people who will be anxious to get their fourth doses are the same people who are anxious to get their third doses, uh, and uh, it might only come to the 50%. My perspective, uh, respectfully speaking, that hasn't been the case because, like, I see demand ba- patterns based on the hundreds of people that I speak to on a weekly basis. It is nothing like the fourth dose, and I think a big part has to do with how effective the third dose in comparison to the fourth dose at preventing complication, which objectively... Uh, was a lot more effective, and I still encourage anyone that didn't get their third dose to please get their third dose because that that is is very effective. Fourth dose for the, the elderly and the immunocompromised, they are seeking it out. They are coming to me in person, but they don't make a huge proportion. Uh, Dr. Pecos, do you agree with that? Well, I mean, there's a few things that have been said. Certainly, um, I would agree with Dr. Ja that that. Um, the the group we're really targeting, and in fact, the, the National Advisory Committee Immunization, uh, in their fourth dose recommendation, certainly focused on those above 80. And, and that is really where I think uh, if there is going to be an impact of the fourth dose, that's where it's going to be. Um, and and hopefully those people will will go out and get their fourth dose. Mo- you know, well over 80 percent, at least in York region, uh, in that group have got uh, their third dose. So and there's only you know 1,100, 1,200. Uh, in that group, at least in New York region, who are going to be eligible for their fourth dose. So many people have recently got their third dose. Certainly, it's something that I'm going to, you know, on a personal level, uh, with some holidays coming up, wanting to get my parents um, who, who got their third dose as soon as they can or as soon as they could to get their fourth dose as soon as they can as well. Um, you know, it, there, there's many different elements here. I, I would certainly agree um, that encouraging masking and, and everyone keeping on their masking, masks, especially those people who are in vulnerable groups, but really, Everyone at this point is a very important message, and, and uh, that is going to have a, a really significant impact. But I also think 
that the, the impact of the vaccine is, is partly through preventing severe illness, maybe even infection, but mostly through severe illness and death, but also um, making people in those higher risk brackets, those oldest uh, of, of the old or frail people, actually feel a bit more comfortable and maybe make their loved ones feel more comfortable being around them, masked or, or unmasked. Um, and that's going to have a big impact on their mental health and well-being. And that impacts their physical health as well. So, you know, there's, there's, there's many things we're looking at here. Those, of course, are assumptions and, and, and somewhat, you know, a theoretical construct there. But I think, you know, as a package and, and overall, I think this is people, something that will have an effect, not a dramatic effect, but it will affect um, overall how, how our population in Ontario, you know, faces this particular wave. Okay, well, I, I would definitely like to hear from our audience. Are you going to go out and get a fourth shot? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And it's true that it hasn't been that effective in preventing infection, though a lot of the infections are fairly mild. And uh, I think... The premier, Doug Ford, has to go and get tested because we just heard that uh, Philippe François, François-Philippe Champagne, uh, the minister who was out with him making an announcement at an auto plant, uh, was it yesterday or the day before, has just tested positive. And it seems that it's it's really, really contagious because uh, every time you have one of these announcements, which are uh, partly outdoors, after that, you've got another politician announcing that, yes, they're positive. Yeah, very much so. I think we, we know that the Omicron B2 variant, the one that's circulating, basically has to outcompete Omicron. And so anecdotally, you do hear about lots of people getting infected in the last few weeks, the same way we heard a lot during uh, late December and January. Um, Quite frankly, I think, Libby, the decision makers in the government have said, there's not much we can do about this. We're going to just kind of go through it. We can look to Europe and other places to say we're going to have some increase, but then it'll come down. And in that context, they've just made, I believe, somewhat of a a cynical call saying, well, let's not annoy the public who are a bit fed up by pushing masks or others if they're not going to have a big, big impact. Well, uh, it's, so not to be too cynical about it, but I think pe- the main decision is we'll just have to carry on and we'll muddle through this. Um, and the expectation is that it's going to be modest. Well, you know, it's interesting with the mask mandate is totally, definitely, clearly a political decision. The chief medical officer of health has been MIA for about a month uh, since he announced that the mandates for for masks are coming off. And, uh, you know, we have people like Eileen Davila, you know, really uh, sending a message through both sides of her mouth on the one hand saying, oh, we really don't need a mandate, but wear your mask. Really, please wear your mask because you really need it. Yeah. Well, I think She's saying exactly right. Um, I'm going to wear a mask indoor closed places. I will wear a mask until well, for several months yet. Uh, Kiro, uh, in terms of the people who come through your pharmacy, what percentage would you say are wearing masks? I would say roughly 95% are still wearing a mask because they know better. But unfortunately, uh, there are a lot of people that you know, you get a lot of people that are young and they think that, you know, they they can't get sick. And, and it's true, their they're likelihood of them having complications is lower. But you also get some, um, you know, senior citizens that, and I know their medical profiles because, you know, I treat them. They're coming in without a mask. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if you get sick, you're going to have big problems. And at the end of the day, I have people coming in here for cough syrup. I know that the messaging that you're getting like from the government is that this is all over, but it isn't. And you're, you're immunocompromised. You should still be wearing your mask. And, and a pharmacy at the end of the day is a very high-risk environment, just to be very clear on this. So do wear your mask in pharmacies. Because it's got people who are sick in it? Like of course, like they have people coming in and picking up lozenges and, and cough medications all the time, and and there's nothing I can do about this. That's that's what we're here for. And at the same time, also, we have senior citizens trusting 
the messaging they're hearing that this is all over and they can take their masks off now. So there's a bit of disconnect. Yeah. And it's dangerous. Yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, exactly. Uh, let us go to the phones. Jim in Pickering. Hi, Jim. Oh, hi, Libby. You know, the more I listen as I'm waiting to speak to you, uh, the more confused I get. <laughs> Since you came on air, I did call Durham Health to book my fourth uh, vaccination shot. And so the message was that uh, it had to be 84 days. That was on the tape. So when I spoke to the uh, receptionist or whomever, they said uh, that they weren't aware that they were booking just yet. They tomorrow were, morning. Tomorrow morning. Uh, tomorrow morning. So I thought I could just book it to beat the rush of, of calling in, like that more would be calling in. Now, my third vaccination shot was uh, my booster was on uh, December 2nd. So I don't even feel I need it. And, and let me, I go to the library. I hate to say it, but I go to a bar and people aren't wearing masks. So I'm feeling confident, I'm feeling healthy, but I'm just going to do it because it's offered and I'm following through. You know, uh, coincidentally, my third shot was also on December 2nd, but uh, so it means you got to wait till May. I guess, exactly. But I figured I'd maybe even book it now if I could. But whenever, I'm in no rush. But I just thought because I heard it this morning, I'd pick up the phone and try. So when we get it, we'll get it. But uh, I'm still not sure where we're at with this, Libby. I'm really not. Yeah, um, no, <laughs> neither are a lot of us. Jim, thanks for your call. So, people, the booking line's open tomorrow, and you have to be five months from your third shot in order to qualify for the fourth shot. And if uh, what Kiro Masse has been saying is correct, there maybe there isn't going to be a big rush. And there was good evidence out of Israel that the fourth shot was effective for people over 60. Let's go to Luna in Toronto. Hi, Luna. Hi. Um, it's Una, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. I've wrong okay. info. It's, it's a weird name. I am just wondering if vaccines for those will be available in pharmacies. Yep, but you you should check with the pharmacy that you're planning on going to uh, okay. to see if they have it. But yes, they should be. And uh, just can someone clarify, uh, Kiro, you don't book a pharmacy through the provincial portal, right? We're still at the same point where there's a fragmented booking system. Every pharmacy has their own booking system. I just would advise that you don't flood pharmacies with phone calls. Each one has their own website where you can book. Uh, But I can almost assure you it will not be happening this week because we we were just informed about this. So I don't know if any pharmacy that has supply. uh, When were you informed exactly? Pardon? When were you informed? Today. Today. Okay. Today. Yeah, as always. But uh, that's been the case since the start of the pandemic. Uh, so we, we don't have supply. We, we actually, I canceled my booking system altogether because I wasn't using it anymore. Uh, and so have most pharmacies. I don't have staffing to do this. So now I'm, I'm going to have to gauge and see if I should, you know, hire people to help out or if I should get uh like a booking software again is it going to be needed how many doses to order i don't know and so but it's definitely not happening this week because by the time i order today it's going to be coming in next week and that's the case with most pharmacies so give it its time so check with pharmacies but uh one thing i will say is I think a lot of pharmacies staffed up for things that are no longer needed, like a rapid antigen test coming back into Canada. So they might have people hanging around that, uh, you know, you still need one to go to the States, but you don't need one coming back. So um, I don't know if uh, some of those people can be so redeployed. Not necessarily. So if you're like the, the pharmacies didn't need to staff anything for people that are coming back into Canada. So oh, right, you're right. Tests, unless they're, they're doing it virtually, that's a different story. Uh, for us personally, we do, at Lawler Pharmacy, we do travel tests, both mm-hmm. PCR and antigen, and we're continuing to do that, no problem. Uh, but even then, like we're still talking maximum in a day, you'd be doing 10 of these. When, we, when we're vaccinating full throttle, we, we're, we're 
we're taking, we're doing something like 120 doses a day. And they are a lot more time consuming uh, and require a lot more sort of work on the computer and, you know, everything from registering the doses to getting compensated for the doses. You're using three different softwares just to get one dose into a person. So it's not, it, it requires a lot more staffing. And at the end of the day, it's, it, it, it really is not, you know, as financially rewarding as people think it is and not in any way. So it, it requires a lot of planning. It's an added service that I'm happy to provide, uh, but it's not something that I could just pull out of thin air in 24 hours. Okay, that's uh, that's interesting, uh, Doctor Ja. Do you agree that um, you know people won't be rushing to get their fourth doses? Well, I, I think it's really important to try to keep uh, messages clear and simple. And I think for your listeners, the key messages, as you've gathered from this conversation, are really just three. First, if you have anyone elderly, particularly above 80 in your family, your grandparents or parents, really encourage them to get the fourth dose. And if they've not had the third dose, to absolutely get that. That's absolutely the key thing to keeping our hospital cases low. The second is for younger people who, I mean, just no one wants to uh, do anything that will now restrict their freedom or return to life as normal. Well, carry on, but mask. Keep rapid tests at home. And if you have any kind of symptoms or uh, you're at all concerned, then test yourself and then isolate, of course, if you're positive. I think we have to try to say, okay, we're in for a rougher few weeks, but what can people do, particularly because the the provincial messaging, I think, has been not as clear as it could be. And there's some simple things. Focus on the elderly to get um, the third and or fourth dose. Keep masks on. Keep rapid tests. And then, hopefully, four weeks from now, we'll have a conversation about that uh, this hopefully is over. We'll have to learn these strategies and incorporate them because what we do in the fall, well, you know, you kind of have to roll out the the same approaches. So people should get comfortable with the idea that you have to change behavior as the pandemic changes. Uh, Dr. Pecos, here's a question. So we know the BA2 variant is very, very contagious. Have you heard of instances where people who got Omicron uh, around Christmas time then again were reinfected with this variant? Do you think that's likely? That certainly can happen. Um, that's a great question. Uh, and, you know, I've heard of them because that's my that's my role. We, you know, we hear about, you know, uh, reinfections like that we have throughout the pandemic. Um, they're not all that common. And, of course, we don't really know how common they are now because the testing system uh, has changed. Um, but it certainly is possible. I think the, the, the comforting part or the reassuring part of that is um, that for most people, especially the, the 90 plus percent of people who have got um, vaccinated, um, you know, if they've had one type of Omicron or a different type of COVID altogether and they get it, they get it again, it's not likely to be severe in, in you know, vast majority of cases. So, you know, while it is possible and, and you want to make sure you're not passing it on to somebody else, um, it isn't going to be something that is going to, you know, end you up in hospital or, or even worse. Um, but that certainly does mean you'll still need to stay home and certainly wear masks even after that five-day isolation period is up, wearing a mask out in public is something you'll need to do. And I think that's really important for anybody of any age to remember. Okay. Let us hear from Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Hi, Libby. Uh, I'm a little confused with the timing of this. I mean, uh, in past times, medical people on your show have said that the effectiveness, I've had my third dose, but the effectiveness starts to wane after about 12 weeks. So I'm wondering what the logic is in waiting, having people wait 21 weeks or so since their last, the third shot at a time when things are, there's an upsurge going on. What, what's the sense behind that? Uh, uh, go ahead. <laughs> no, the evidence is pretty clear that uh, the vaccines keep you out of hospital or prevent you dropping dead for several months, particularly if you've had 
at least two doses, ideally three. So it's a different metric when you're looking at how am I going to get reinfected? Well, that depends on, in part, whether the variant like Omicron, which basically has had so many mutations that it escaped some of the things that the vaccine uh, is able to protect against. But you have to remember the protection against hospitalizations um, is quite high if you have two or three doses. And that's the key message. And it it lasts for several months. Uh, It probably does mean it will need a a seasonal campaign, but that's that's ahead. That depends on what variants come to uh, Canada. And so those decisions we can't uh, quite make yet. But uh, the idea isn't that your immunity starts uh, really falling off against hospitalizations after uh, two, three months. This, uh, you know, it's the opposite. It stays high for quite quite longer. Well, I guess, uh, uh, Daryl, what you're referring to is, you know, they measure immunity with numbers of antibodies and maybe those start to go down sooner. Am I uh, correct about that, Dr. Pecos? Yes. I mean, you know, I think, you know, Dr. Jha has, has, it, has it right on that, um, you know, the, the protection from infection wanes first. The protection from the most severe um, consequences of COVID takes quite a bit more time to wane. And, and it's likely um, that it, it, it wanes more slowly uh, the more doses you have, although we, we, the, the evidence is still out on that. Um, I think it's important to note, though, that, um, you know, the provincial booking system and the ideal interval here that we're, we're going to be getting in Ontario is five months. Um, but but people who are very enthusiastic or for, for a variety of, of good reasons um, want to get it at three months are going to be able to do so. They'll just have to call into the provincial system. So it is a permissive um, recommendation like that and a you know permissive booking. The the data from Israel was was I believe four months past yeah um, their third dose. So you know there, there's there's no absolute right answer here, and it is all along a spectrum, and and of course depends ultimately on the individual. But many of these decisions, of course, are made at the population level. So what we also want to think about is, you know, how many doses, and I'm sure people are concerned about as well, how many doses are we going to have to have in the end? You know, what is this going to look like in the fall? And I think it is reasonable to assume that we may have to boost again at some point in the fall or winter. So, you know, uh, spacing these out uh, to a degree that we're not uh, you know, we're we're not offering them every three months to everyone. That that's really quite burdensome, expensive, and and perhaps it looks like not necessary either. So you know, that's how that decision was made. But for people who do wanted to get it earlier, in particular for people you know with with a good reason for it, either because of their life circumstances or their medical circumstances, they will be able to receive it at at uh, any time past three months. Okay, well, that certainly wasn't clear in the info for the government. And that is a good note to wrap things up on because I am looking at the clock and we are over time. So thank you so much, Dr. Barry Pekas, Dr. Prabhat Jha and Kiro Masse. And I'm sure we'll be revisiting this topic again. Thanks for your time. Thank you, ladies. Bye-bye. Good afternoon. Bye-bye. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about an increase in the minimum wage. Is it enough for people to live on? We'll get to that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, Ontario workers who earn minimum wage will be getting a pay hike no matter who wins the June election. The boosts promised by both opposition parties are bigger than what the government is proposing. A 50 cent increase to 1550 on October the 1st. Some business groups say it is too much to handle on top of the COVID costs of the last two years, while workers advocates say it is still not enough to live on. So let's get to that. Numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'd like to hear from you, especially if you are a business or if you are trying to get by 
on minimum wage. Right now, let's go to Sheila Block, Senior Economist with the Canadian Policy Centre for Policy Alternatives, Craig Pickthorne of the Ontario Living Wage Network, and Brad Butt, the VP of Government and Stakeholder Relations at the Mississauga Board of Trade. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Libby. Yeah, pleasure uh, to be having us. Thank you. So let us begin with Brad Butt. Uh, Brad, uh, is this going to pose a hardship for a lot of businesses? Well, listen, we recognize that workers like businesses have been impacted by the pandemic and higher cost of living uh, and other related issues, and that minimum wage normally does, you know, have a natural kind of increase uh, uh, year by year, um, other than the freeze that we had at the beginning of the Ford administration. So we recognize that minimum wage is certainly going to increase and it should keep pace with, with inflation. Now this is a 7.5% increase. So that's certainly higher than inflation. And there will be some businesses that will be impacted by this. They will cut hours. They will reduce employment. And uh, they will have to do some work themselves that they would otherwise hire uh, workers to do because this will be an impact along with significant increased costs in, in input into their businesses, particularly restaurants with food, etc. So, yes, this is going to have an impact on businesses. No question. Uh, Sheila, how do you respond to that? Well, um Everything has an impact on businesses, and we know that recent increases in commodity prices like gas have had a big impact as well. But I also think that these proposed legislative increases might just be catching up to what's actually happening in the labor market. We've heard a lot about labor shortages um, uh, in some of the industries that uh, my colleague just mentioned in terms of restaurants and others. So, you know, the way markets work is, those wages are going to be bid up, and it's good to have that legislative floor uh, underneath it to support that. Uh, yeah, be, before we move to Craig, I, I was going to ask that. It's very hard to find people to staff in those types of businesses. So, Brad, don't businesses have to pay more anyway? Well, in some cases, yes, that would be true, and certainly the marketplace would play a role in that. But, you know, many of the positions that are paid at the bare minimum wage in the province of Ontario are often part-time. They're students, they're seniors, there are others who are working, and and, and the minimum wage is, is uh, a level of compensation that they find to be fine in their circumstances. Um, and other industries, obviously other businesses, uh, would be affected uh, differently. But, uh, you know, anytime you raise the you raise wages, Wages, you raise costs, you raise prices for the customer, and it all has an impact. Right. And uh, one of the points is that you, you raise wages for everyone else, because once minimum wage goes up, the people who are a little bit beyond that, well, they want raises too. That's true. Let's bring in Craig Pickthorne. Hi, Craig. Hello. Uh, your group has done a study uh, not that long ago, and you say that if, you, if somebody wants to live in Toronto, they need to make at least twenty-two bucks an hour. Twenty-two dollars and eight cents. Yeah, you're right. So <laughs> it's a difference. Turns out to a difference each um, each week of uh, uh, two hundred and thirty dollars. That's how much you're short that being able to make ends meet. So that's not a small jump. I mean, as we can see, I also would like to just respectfully uh, correct. Brad, that it, it really is um, less than one in three minimum wage workers are under the age of 20. We've known that for a while. And our friends at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives um, have shown that time and time again. Well, he didn't say they were under 20. He said some of them are students. Uh, it can students, be... teenagers, yeah. That's, that assertion is no longer correct. Well, yeah, he didn't say teenagers. Just just if we're, if we're on the, you know, university students uh, are older than 20 often, uh, uh, mature students. And we know that a lot of older people who are find that their pensions aren't enough, uh, they're doing part-time work that may also be compensated at yeah, a minimum. Minimum I wage. think it'd be really hard to to find somebody who's in that situation that would be fine with a minimum wage. Uh, so, you know, what do they do? 
Well, I can tell you what our employers do is they they certify with us. They they ask us, look, I want to I want to be sure that I'm not holding someone in working poverty, and so we calculate the living wage every year, and then we show our work, and they they report benefits to us, the employers that we have certified. There's actually 53 in Toronto. Uh, yeah. No, what I'm asking is, so uh, oh, if if there's a shortfall, uh, how do people do it? Is it a, generally a matter of working more than one job, or uh, do they have to team up with other people in terms of housing? I'm saying, what do people, if there's a deficit in what you need and what you earn, how do they make that meet? I understand that, that one of the ways that they they make it work is make terrible choices between rent and food or rent and childcare. These are just, this is just not a, a good situation uh, for the worker and for the community as well. Uh, Sheila, what's your view of that? I absolutely agree with Craig there is that, um, you know, throughout this pandemic, the, those kinds of terrible choices have been highlighted. Some of them are, do I go to work sick uh, or do I put food on the table for my kids? Uh, another example is, you know, do I risk infection at work or put food on the table for my kids? So we know that there is a lot of working poverty, particularly in Toronto, but not exclusively in Toronto. And it is those untenable choices that people are forced to make. And uh, with huge negative impacts, not only for those individuals and families themselves, but really for the uh, for the province as a whole. And what is your view of how do people in that position, uh, they make invidious choices, but are they working more than one job? Are they being housed, you know, with other people? How, how are they squaring that circle? So, so the way that we know that happens is it happens uh, in a few ways. One is multiple job holders, right? So people are working from job to job. And it really brings out, I think, the question of the question about adequacy isn't only about minimum wage, right? It's about scheduling. It's about hours. It's about knowing your schedule ahead of time all those other employment standards that are also important. And so what people do is they're absolutely, they're underhoused. So uh, that can range from living in a place that's uh, too small for you and your family. And that really, I think, hit home over the last couple of years again through the pandemic. Um, people taking on very expensive consumer debt and people are going hungry. That is the reality of what uh, we are facing. And we see that huge increase in food bank use that's happened over the last couple of years that that really bears that out. Brad, but what are your members telling you in general about the weight of added COVID costs, including, I'm assuming that a lot of them have loans they have to pay off? Well, definitely, depending on the sector that you were in and how badly you were affected by the pandemic, particularly businesses that were in full lockdown, some of them for 320 days uh, over the past two years uh, where they couldn't open their businesses at all, um, they have incurred significant debt to keep their businesses alive through loans. Now, there have been some grant programs, etc., <clears throat> but there's no doubt that those businesses are, are heavily, have been heavily impacted by COVID and now are trying uh, to come out of it and, 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 and to recover. And so at the same time that is happening, they are being asked to significantly increase their costs of doing business. At, at the same time, they're going to have to start repaying back uh, these loans and and the grants are 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 have are ending and they don't have that wage support coming in to keep their business uh, up and running. Uh, I mean, we certainly think that there will be some more businesses, unfortunately, that aren't going to make it because even though we're kind of out of the worst part of of COVID, um, these businesses are not up and running at full pre-COVID pace uh, by any stretch, and they're going to continue to have all of these costs and not necessarily have the matching revenue to be coming in to, uh, to support them and help them pay off these loans. Okay, we have to take another break, but we will be back with more on this very important topic on the other side of the break.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the proposed increase to Ontario's minimum wage. The Ford government announced it will go up to fifteen fifty, a fifty cent increase on October the first. Of course, they have to be reelected for that. The other parties are actually promising bigger minimum wage hikes, uh, 16 bucks. And in the case of the NDP, they say they would have it up to 20 by 2026, which is a little while from now. Craig Pickthorne, you pegged the minimum needed to live in Toronto at 22.08 an hour. Uh, since we're talking to the Mississauga Board of Trade, what about Mississauga or other places in the GTA? Sure, Libby. I can tell you that the, uh, the living wage rate for Peel which we just calculated last year, is $19.80. You know, then you go as far as, say, London, it goes down to $16.55. So that's about the range in the the province from about 16 to up to Toronto to $22.08. So, Brad, but uh, is that good news? I know that in Toronto, uh, some people are worried, saying, hey, you know, the people that do those jobs, which we need, they just can't afford to live here. Well, listen, you could do a whole nother show on on housing costs, and I I don't think I'm going to go there uh, today. There's no question about the fact that it is expensive to live, uh, particularly in the greater Toronto uh, area. And uh, and in some cases, uh, wage rates uh, haven't uh, kept up to pace uh, with uh, housing uh, challenges uh, in, in the GTA. But as you say, when I get back to um, the vast majority of people that work in the province of Ontario work at pay that is well above minimum wage. They are mainly in full-time permanent jobs. Uh, minimum wage is a scale for um, a certain group of employees, generally in certain sectors. And again, and I know one of my friends on the call disagrees with me, but generally speaking, it is a lot of folks that work part-time or seasonal, and that's how the, the minimum wage has generally been set for decades in this province and assessed at whether or not it is at an appropriate level for base pay for people, you know, working in our communities. So that's how it's been done. And, uh, you know, we can have a discussion about this living wage uh, issue down the road. I think the business community would be interested in having a conversation about that and what it would look like. But at this stage, we have to deal with what we have. Sheila Block, how much of an issue is part-time work? Now, it really, really came to the fore during the pandemic when we had the workers that we were hailing as heroes in long-term care uh, in retirement homes, and they can't get full-time work. They have to cobble these part-time jobs together because uh, it's cheaper for the employer. Absolutely, that's an issue. And and in 2019, the last kind of normal year, uh, oh, just over one in 10 workers in Ontario was working at minimum wage. And so that's a pretty fair share of the population. And then if you dig down a little deeper, and if you look at um, recent immigrants, or you look at, at, at women, it's a higher share of the population. And And I think that Again, the issue really goes beyond the minimum wage. It goes to other issues around um, the quality of work and issues that really, you know, some of those issues were really addressed in legislation in 2018 and then repealed by the foreign government. And that includes legislation that made sure um, that you were paid the same rate, whether you were a permanent employee, whether you were a temporary employee, whether you were a contract employee and other measures that um, address some of the issues around gig workers, which we're hearing a lot of. So it's, it's a complex mix of issues that really have resulted in this really heightened inequality, particularly in Toronto, but also uh, across Ontario, where you have a group of very highly paid workers. And we really have a missing middle with a, a large group of, of low-paid workers really struggling to um, to keep going. Hmm. Uh, but 
again, a lot of those low-paid workers are in certain sectors. Absolutely. And so the kinds of sectors that they're more likely to be in um, are ones like, uh, you know, restaurants and hotels, but also in other kinds of industries um, that are like uh, people who are uh, doing office cleaning, people who are working in call centers, um, those kinds of industries um, that are a little less visible, but um, used to have workers who were actually em- employed by the um, by the company themselves and are now contracted out. So um, you used to have, you know, if you were working in an apartment building, you would have a superintendent who who did the cleaning, and now much of that work is contracting contracted out to cleaning contractors. And so a lot of those kinds of changes about the organization of business have really had an impact of just pushing that risk down to the people who can least afford it, uh, and those are those workers uh, in low-paid jobs. And there's also a question about the role of government. You know, just this morning I saw a release from uh, Personal Support Worker Association, and the government finally moved to push up the wages of personal support workers in certain settings like long-term care. And this release said, hey, wait a minute, those who live in retirement homes are not getting that bump. So just as a general thing, Brad, but what's the role of government in this? Brad, are you there? Uh, uh, Sorry, I didn't realize that question was specifically for me. Well, listen, we heard from... uh we heard from private um, uh, home care companies who are members uh, of our uh, uh, Chamber of Commerce network um, that employ PSWs. And because they, they are private sector employees, uh, they didn't qualify for the $3 an hour wage enhancement. Why would you treat someone that goes into somebody's home to provide these services to a senior uh, any differently than if they happen to live in a you know, in a retirement home or a long-term care facility. So, I mean, <laughs> if the government of the day, whoever it is, decides they want to bring in a wage enhancement uh, in a certain sector, I mean, that's a government policy decision, and they can certainly do that. But it, it has to be universal. You can't pick winners and losers. If the view is that PSWs are not paid adequately uh, for the work they do, and we all know the tremendous work, particularly, during COVID that they have done, if they're entitled to a wage enhancement, and it looks like the Ford government intends to make this permanent, you have to extend it to everybody. You don't just pick people that work in certain sectors and not other sectors. It should be applied to everyone. Well, yeah, and it it results in labor shortage in home care. We know that before the pandemic, home care globally or in Ontario was able to fulfill 90-some-odd percent of the requests for service, according to their own numbers. And now it's down to 56%. So, you know, it, 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 these anomalies, uh, Craig Pick, Pickthorn, what do you see as the role of government in all of this? Well, I'm going to take a, a bit of a, a different uh, stance because we do work with a level of government. Um, a lot of times it, it's the municipal level. Um, Municipal, large municipal and public sector employers are kind of employers on our behalf. We're, you know, we're, we own them in, in a sense. And so I think there's a lot of uh, impetus to get those government employers to be good employers to pay a living wage. And I'll give an example. Uh, we've been working in Hamilton for some time now to get the city of Hamilton to be, become a certified living wage employer. Now, obviously, all, and this is true for most municipalities, that all full-time and part-time workers at a municipality are already earning well above the living wage, and they're most likely unionized. It's the contract workers that Sheila was mentioning, the, the, um, you know, the cleaners, the security guards, and then specifically in Hamilton, the big debate was around, well, what do we, should we pay a living wage to our lifeguards and our crossing guards? Which, you have to think about that for a moment. These are people that we entrust to uh, guard the lives of our children uh, and, and then their safety. And there was a big debate about whether or not they should get a living wage. Ultimately, they did. 
Now, these people may very well be working uh, part-time. They may very well be retired or, or whatnot, but it was decided that um, if they work at that job, they should at least earn a living wage. And so at the government level, it's a great opportunity to make all public sector employers aware of, of what the living wage is and pay it especially to those contract and seasonal uh, and part-time workers. Lifeguarding is is something that a lot of students do. That's right. Uh, very young students who are good swimmers. Uh, so, um, yeah, the role of government. It, it, how much of a problem, Sheila, is it that you have anomalies like the one we discussed in for PSWs? I think it's 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 a big problem, and it's particularly a big problem. Um, in this period of shortages of such an essential uh, workers. And so I think the solution, and I would go back to this, is a minimum wage increase, right? If you increase the minimum wage across the kind of, across the board like that, you're raising the floor below all workers, including those PSWs. And then I think what we need is, is better thought out public policy and public policy that kind of takes into consideration what these inequities, uh, you know, what what a policy that looks good in a press release actually will work its way through the system is doing. And then I think the other piece of that, there are so many pieces around long-term care that, that are tied into that, right? Because really because of the shortage of beds in long-term care, you have a lot of people in retirement homes who have very high care needs. So you have you know, that issue, you have underfunding of, um, of services overall in long-term care. You have the privatization of home care and the essentially rationing of it that makes it harder to access and harder for seniors to stay at home. So especially when it comes to issues around um, care for seniors, there are, there are a lot of moving parts. And if you just kind of shift one, you can have a lot of unintended consequences. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that obviously is an issue that we've covered separately a great deal. But uh, generally, before we... Oh, we have very little time left, Sheila. So the 50-cent increase, your view of how that will play itself out or ripple through the economy? I, I think we'll barely notice it. Um <laughs> That, that 50 cent increase, uh, is a 3% increase from where it's at now. Um, uh, I think that, that in terms of low wage workers, we're seeing a lot of, um, uh, there is notions of shortages and wages will start to come up. So it's not going to be felt either on either side, any impacts on the employer or unfortunately for employees, um, It'll be a very muted effect. Okay, and I just looked at the clock. I'm out of time. Thank you so much, Brad Butt, Craig Pickthorn, and Sheila Block. Thanks. Thank you, Libby. Yeah, thanks, thanks Libby. for having us. Okay, and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.